Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, uh, Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, Today I have Brian Altman. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Genetics at Rochester University. We're going to be talking about uh, circadian clocks and how they affect our metabolism and possibly predispose us to cancer. Brian, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Well, tell me about your your research. How did you get uh, interested in circadian clocks and all this stuff? Right, right. So I saw that um, on the program a few weeks ago, you had uh, Christian Frezza on who works on metabolism and cancer. And I'm also Mm -hmm. interested in that topic. I've been working on that since um, I was in graduate school at Duke University. Um, The idea being, as he explained, that um, metabolism is altered in many kinds of cancer. Um, cancer cells have a metabolism that looks more like um, growing cells. They eat a lot. They make a lot of waste products. They're rapidly growing. And so um, when I was deciding where to do my postdoctoral training, um, I ended up choosing a lab that was just becoming interested in circadian rhythms, um, the lab of um, Qi Dang. And before I get to that, sorry, I'll tell you about our sort of basic interest, which is the idea that in cancer, um, normal circadian rhythms are screwed up. And this gives the tumor cells an advantage over normal cells. It gives them a chance to outcompete their neighboring normal cells and potentially grow faster. And we hope that this is an exploitable vulnerability in cancer. So um, I believe the Warburg effect was what first figured out that cancer cells have a different uh, method of metabolism. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so as um, sort of uh, stemming off of that, um, cancer cells, they um, take up a lot of glucose, a lot of amino acids, but they waste a lot of it. They make a lot of waste products. And um, the reason that we were becoming interested in this in the lab that I joined for my postdoc is um, because one of the things that most strongly controls metabolism in a cell is your body's 24-hour circadian clock. Um, this is something that I think you heard a bit about from Bo Kaiju um, back a few months ago. These are 24-hour cycles that are um, synchronized in you and me by by light exposure, and they control lots of different processes in our bodies, including um, metabolism in your organs um, and uh, hormone release, things like that. And even on the level of individual cells, you'll see oscillations in in, uh, metabolites and genes throughout the day and night. Is anyone, um, who's characterizing that? Has someone looked at you know, as someone developed clocks for all our major organs or looked at how they change? That's a great question. Um, and I, I think that we are a little bit closer now than we've been. So let me start with humans. It's a little hard to get at this in humans because we can only really um, study things that are practical to study in humans, right? So it's not hard to do to get volunteers to do um, blood draws every four hours for 24 hours or 48 hours. There's, there's data out there for that. Similarly, you can get people to give like a skin sample every few hours. So you can look at what the clocks look like in skin and blood and saliva. But in other organs, it's impossible. You're not going to be able to get a biopsy of liver every four hours for 48 hours. So 
a lot of what we know about the circadian clock comes from model organisms, um, mostly mice. There's been a ton of data from, from mice on what their circadian clocks look like. The problem is, is that mice are nocturnal and we're diurnal, and this is not a small difference in the circadian world. So a lot of the way in which they're wired is different. So recently, um, a lab at the Salk Institute, the lab of Dr. Sachin Panda, was able to do a study on olive baboons, which are um, a pest species in Kenya. And he was able to understand the circadian clocks of 64 different tissues from the olive baboon, which gives us a much greater understanding of what might be happening in humans, since they're much more closely related to us than, um, than mice are. So what's been discovered in terms of the clock and the organs? And, you know, do we have any generalities on you know, uh, <clears throat> the organs all move in sync or out of sync or what goes first? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, they, don't, they, they don't all move in sync, which we don't still fully understand. That was one of the surprising findings of that study. Um, if you look at um, what, he, what they did was they were looking at gene expression. They were looking at when certain genes peaked during the day and night. If you line all these up, they don't all peak at the same time, even though the animal is, has a robust circadian rhythm. And we don't really understand why that is yet. Um, the other thing that was sort of surprising, I don't think the field has fully digested this yet, is that the most circadian organ in baboon was the thyroid, um, which doesn't, hasn't gotten much attention previously. Um, but also highly circadian um, in baboons and mice and humans is the lung. And so that's sort of gotten us interested in studying the circadian clock in the context of lung cancer. Well, if you can, tell me about the thyroid a little bit. How did that cycle and what were the implications? All they found really um, was that... Um, the, the thyroid had the most number of cycling um, that of all the different organs, um, the thyroid had, um, I think it was about 30% of its genes had a circadian cycle to it. Whereas in contrast, and this might not be surprising, the least oscillatory tissue was bone marrow. There's a ton of different cells in bone marrow that are making um, different kinds of blood cells and connective tissue and fat. And so as a whole, the bone marrow wasn't really very circadian um, from that study. Well, I ask because I would guess, you know, a lot of the cycling and orchestrating goes on probably while you're sleeping because you're not eating and maybe it's the time for the body to do an orderly, um, you know, cycling of all the organs and the gene expression and everything and, you know, do things while you're asleep, you know, like, yeah, yeah, mostly your, your, yeah your brain clears out and things like that. So And, and also not even, um, not even just your brain, but also metabolically, when you're awake and moving around, you have very different metabolic requirements when you're asleep and, and basically fasting. You know, when you, most people, um, when they're asleep, they don't get up to have a snack. So they're fasting for some number of hours. And so um, for instance, um, during the day, you're, you'll see a higher level of insulin in the blood, which um, allows your cells to take up glucose. And at night, you'll have a higher level of glucagon in the blood, which will allow the um, liver to release glucose. And these are partially circadian. Um, their rhythm is partially controlled by the clock in the pancreas. And similarly, um, your muscle is very different in the day and the night. And during the day, it's eating a lot of sugar and it's, um, it's expelling lactate. At night, it's engaging in what's called oxidative metabolism. So it's really fully digesting things. And we think this has to do with it repairing itself. So does this suggest a natural ordering of activity? at certain times after waking or before sleep? Mm -hmm. um, the general idea, which is um, which we've sort of tried to study, is that circadian rhythm segments different processes in the body that need to happen at different times. Like, for instance, um, when you have higher insulin and glucose or, or and glucagon. And even on the level of individual, individual cell, the clock might segment um, eating from building, for instance, or eating from dividing. 
Um, whereas in cancer, cancer um, wants to, wants to um, engage in maximal metabolism and division at all times. And so it may find it ad advantageous to break the circadian clock in order to gain advantage over other cells. Oh, interesting. So have you studied cancer and um, the clock differences, the metabolism differences, you know, during sleep-wake cycles? Um, I, we have studied that a little bit um, in, in humans, but mostly a lot of the work that we've done is in um, cells and cell lines and in mice. And that allowed us to ask the really basic question of which genes that are um, mutated in cancer a lot might impact the clock. Um, and the one that I, fo that I focused on my postdoc, I'm still focusing on, is this cancer gene called MYC. MYC, um, which when it's it's involved in about a third of all human cancers, and it's actually involved in about half of lung cancers. It's mutated in these cancers, and when it's mutated or amplified, it can basically crank up um, metabolism and biosynthesis. The cell eats more, the cell makes more, the cell divides more. Um, and the reason we were interested in MYC is because. MYC uniquely seemed to have the opportunity to hijack the circadian clock machinery. Um, it, MYC binds to DNA, and it binds to the exact same kind of DNA that the clock machinery binds. And so we had this idea that MYC might take over clock function when there's a lot of it. And that's ex actually exactly what we found in cells, and now we're starting to study this in mice as well. That when there's a lot of MYC, the clock just shuts down because MYC has taken over these normally circadian processes. So... <clears throat> For the cells that are doing this, I guess they're not listening to the, the master clock and the other clocks going on in the body and probably acting out of concert with the rest of the body, right? Yeah, we, we've, we try to hit them with synchronizing stimuli, um, with ways to get their clocks going again. They just, and like you said, they just don't respond or they'll respond for one cycle and then go back to not having a clock. In. So they're, um, like you said, engaged in their own activity. They're not acting in concert. And this goes along with the cells having an increased metabolic flux. They're, uh, they're taking up more nutrients. They're building more. And even metabolism itself doesn't seem to cycle anymore in these cells. So um, that would say it would signal the body in a certain way that, you know, there's things that are out of sync, continually out of sync. So do you see a change in the clocks of the other organs that are not affected or the other parts of the body to try to compensate or, uh, you know, they're recognizing that there's uh, you know, significant cells that are out of sync, they change what they do? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's something, not something that we've looked at yet, but there's data from humans that supports exactly what we were talking about. Um, and some of the most important data that supports that is the fact that night shift workers have a higher instance of many kinds of cancer. Um, this has been appreciated for um, many years now that they've um, studied nurses over the course of many decades in the nurses' health studies and found that those that engage in decades plus of night shift work have higher instances of various cancer like breast cancer and colorectal cancer. So this is sort of getting what, to what you're talking about, that the whole body's out of sync that may promote cancer development. So what, what are you hoping to figure out <clears throat> now that you're observing this, this phenomenon? What are some details you want to find out? Right. So two things we want to find out are, um, can we identify which tumors have a disrupted circadian clock? Because we don't think that this is that this is universal. Some, it might just be altered. Some, it's gone. Some, it looks almost normal. And can we use this to um, inform on therapy, on therapy choices? So along with the, to the first point, um, since we're studying MYC, we're looking to use MYC as potentially the diagnostic to say, if you have mutated MYC, you probably have a disrupted clock, and this may inform on which treatments we use. So um, maybe we start using a drug that can try to reestablish the clock in these tumors. Maybe we can use a chemotherapeutic at a special time that won't make the patient sick. 
And um, this all gets into the idea of chronotherapy, um, which I'm not sure if that's something that um, has been talked about on the show before. No, I haven't heard about that. What is it? So chronotherapy is the idea that for every drug that we take, there is a right time to take it based on the circadian clock. Most targets of drugs we take are circadian. They're higher and lower, lower levels of the course of the day. And yet despite this, there's very few drugs in the United States that um, are prescribed with chronotherapy information. One of the most notable examples of one that is, is first-generation statins for cholesterol. Um, the patients were instructed to take those in the evening because the enzyme that they were targeting was highest at night. So if you take them in the evening, you have the best chance of success with that. Um, in the next few years, we're also going to see doctors most likely prescribing blood pressure medication in the evening as well um, to get blood pressure down while you're sleeping, which seems to be the most important time to keep it down. Um, but for cancer, the idea is that can we, uh, chemotherapy drugs are still widely used. They're not going away. They're very effective in treating cancer. They also, as you know, have horrible side effects. So can we find a time to give these chemotherapy drugs for the most effective in killing the tumor cell and at the same time spare the patient from the worst toxicity? How much of a difference do you believe it will make to target drugs to the right time and in different people? You know, I mean, you don't want to just say early morning. And what if someone sleeps during that time? What if someone's awake during that time? So I would think it'd be a mixture of how long they've been awake uh, is probably the best time to administer a drug, but that may occur at day for some and night for others. How do you reconcile yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. So let me answer your first question first. It can make a pretty big difference. In chronotherapy trials with, um, in mice and in people, giving the drug at different times can result in up to twofold difference in, um, in toxicity symptoms like nausea and um, uh, other things, uh, other symptoms in the body, vomiting, um, uh, hair loss. So it can make quite a difference. But you're absolutely right that as compared to laboratory mice, people are quite different from each other. And I think this is probably why um, so far a lot of chronotherapy trials haven't been that successful in people in cancers because there's not really a great way to diagnose individual people's clocks. Um, but the field is starting to move in the direction, and this is something that we're participating in, of working to diagnose individuals' clocks so that we can use that information to inform on treatment. treatment. Um, when you say diagnose a clock, what do you mean? Just figure out what their clock is? And yeah. yeah how so does that can... correspond with how they sleep? Like, what, do they... I mean, do people have a preferred clock and are they sleeping based on that preferred clock? Can you figure that out? Yeah, so there actually is um, several self-administered tests that can tell you whether you're a, um, what they call a, a morning lark or a night owl. Um, I would definitely fall into the morning lark category. I like to wake up early. I have a hard time staying up late. Um, self-administered tests are useful, but they're also prone to error. People might over-underestimate their, their own times of when they're asleep. And so there's been an effort recently to try to see what we can learn from blood tests. It, anytime you get something done, they always draw blood. It's really, it's, it's you know, part of any standard procedure. And so if we have a vial of blood, what can we learn for, about the patient's circadian clock from that? Can we learn if it is, um, if it's organized properly? Can we learn when, um, if we can predict when that blood was taken, if their, their clock is messed up? Um, and this is some work that we've been doing in collaboration with um, uh, Jake Huey at Stanford, who developed some computational methods, and also our own clinical trials network, the University of Rochester, NCORP, which does clinical trials on cancer patients to improve quality of life. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, um, again, are you th how customized is, uh, you know, an ideal medication schedule and a, and a clock for someone? Has I anyone gone through that process to figure it out? Is there, you know... 
Is there a way to figure out at least parts of it? Yeah, um, we're not we're not there yet. I think with being able to um, get really good information about somebody's individual clock, but we are moving in that direction. There's now three or four competing methods out there where you can take a blood sample do something called RNA sequencing on it, which means looking at all the RNAs in the blood. And then from that information say, okay, I think this blood was taken at 1.30 PM. And then if you compare that to when it was actually taken, it might give you an idea of how it screwed up the So if, you're, if, you're, um, if your computational test says the blood was taken at 1, it was actually taken at 4.30, then that might tell you the patient has a screwed up clock. Um, and that might inform them when would be the best time to give it. There yeah, this would be a nice, easy intervention that wouldn't really, uh, you know, it would help the person and not harm them. Seems yeah. like a simple thing to do. Yeah. And, and, and that's always the um, issue is the right, the, what, not just what the best way, but the simple. Um, there's various um, methods out there that have been published about like, you know, the very best way to get circuit information, but they involve things that probably wouldn't be done in a patient setting. Like for instance, if you isolate only one kind of white blood cells to get really clean circuit information, but that's not really what's done at your neighborhood doctor. So they're just taking them. So for this normal blood, this normal blood draw, what can we get? So to give you an example of what we've done in this regard, um, we're working with um, a, a, um, a research professor over at the clinical trials network, Karen Mustrin, who studies insomnia and cancer, um, which is actually a really big problem, especially in survivors. Almost all cancer survivors have severe insomnia, moderate to severe insomnia. And so we've been That's working. interesting because maybe because their clocks were disturbed by the cancer and then, um, I don't know, it caused a permanent dysregulation in their clocks. Yeah, this is an ongoing question. Was it disturbed by the cancer or by the treatment? And that's something that they are asking there. It seems like it's probably from both. Um, it's not only from the cancer, but also especially chemotherapy can leave lasting damage all throughout the body as a, as a, a sort of um, price for fighting the cancer. Um, and insomnia itself can be severe enough to cause independently be a cause of early death. It can be quite, um, quite a toll on these people. And um, again, like I told you before, with regards to, to circadian time, most insomnia tests are self-administered. You basically fill out a, a questionnaire and it tells you how bad your insomnia is. So um, we've been working with her to try to study patient blood samples to see if we can learn something about the circadian clock. And in early research, we, we've so far found that cancer survivors indeed have a disrupted circadian clock. And it seems that if you prescribe these patients exercise, which is the focus of Karen's research, um, this exercise can actually improve their circadian clocks. Um, and so that's something that we would like to move forward on studying more. Any other um, insights into... Uh... You know, again, we have larks and owls, but is that uh, does that correlate molecularly? Are there more types of, uh, of people that have different disparate clocks, or there are only only two? Like, what anything found there? No, there's definitely um, there's definitely a variation there. There's actually been some studies that have linked genetic. I wouldn't say they're not abnormalities because there's nothing wrong with the protein. Genetic variations in certain circadian proteins to um, extreme night owls and extreme larks, people who um, prefer to sleep into the afternoon and go and, and go to bed in the middle of the night. Um, so they, they've actually been able to tie genetics to sleep in that regard, which is pretty cool. Um, but as far as um, in cancer, if somebody has a disrupted clock, the question becomes, how can you fix it? How can you make it better? Do you ask them to exercise? Do you ask them to restrict their eating to only the daytime? Do you ask them to wear glasses that shine blue light into their eyes in the morning? There's various ideas out there for how to do that. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, what are some interventions that actually have, uh, have worked to change people's clocks? And again, if you, you know, if there's a simple diagnostic way to know what might be the ideal clock for you, I mean, that could be offered clinically and that would help with all kinds of things, you know, taking medication and feeling better and maybe, uh, you know, improving your health without doing anything else, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what we like to see with with these patients is that they're active during the day and they're having a, they're having a good consolidated sleep. At night. By consolidated, I mean staying in bed for you know six to eight hours and actually um, entering a good sleep cycle. Um, we'd also like to see that they are eating only in a confined period during. Um, this is another topic of research that's being studied um, a little bit here at the U of R. Um, is the idea of time restricted eating that there's a certain time that's best to eat. This also um, piggybacks off of work from Sachin Panda, who I mentioned earlier at at, um, at the Salk Institute. And, and, and yeah, this, I read his uh, book recently. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly the the idea in his book, which is that um, if you eat only during the day, this can improve your health because it sort of synchronizes your clock. And the fact is, this itself might be a treatment for cancers with disrupted clocks. If you're um, eating on a on a schedule, this might be a signal to try to resynchronize the clocks in your cancer cells and potentially aid. In, and this is something we might want to try in the future. Oh, that's very interesting because, yeah, if there's no food around at the other times, the cancer cells wouldn't be able to grow. Yeah, there, there's lots of metabolism treatments out there. Um, this is I'm still sort of plugged into the tumor metabolism world, so I hear about a lot of these. And they've been, in some cases, they've been useful, but they're either very toxic or not very effective. They, it seems like metabolism treatments will be most effective in combination with other treatments, potentially with um, treatments that focus on the circadian time of the tumor cell. Yeah, I guess the right timing can help quite a bit. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of these things don't hang around in the blood for very long, so you got to pick and choose when the right time is. And the right time may not be when's most convenient for the doctor, but it may be the best time to um, for the, the patient's disease. So how does someone start uh, turning this into useful information for themselves? Or how could they do some self-investigation to figure out uh, how to help themselves with taking medication or you know, finding their best time to sleep and wake? Um, I think that it's, a, it's not a bad idea to ask your doctor if there's any research out there on the drugs you're taking, if there's a certain time to take them. Most likely they're going to say no, but in some cases they might say yes. Um, the, thing, the thing about changing the timing of medication is that it's not, as long as you're taking it, your doctor's not going to be that worried about it. Um, so if you, say, I prefer, if, if you say I prefer to take this medication at night, then that's not going to be a problem. I take blood pressure medication, and after watching years of talks on blood pressure and circadian rhythm, I switched to taking mine at night, and my numbers have improved a bit. So it certainly helped me. Um, that's I think cool. That I think that avoiding eating at night is important, um, especially like right before bed. It seems that that um, itself might lead to um, some health problems down the road. So that's something that a lot of us are trying to do after le- learning about this. Um, me and my family, we try to restrict our eating to about a 10 or 11 hour window during the day. Yeah, that's not bad. And how many hours before bed on average? Uh, let's see, probably, probably at least two or three hours before bed. Yeah, that's what I've heard is a good window. Uh, at least two, but if not three hours before sleeping, don't mm-hmm. eat anymore. Yeah. And especially, I think that right now, a lot of us are working from home and, um, you know, not going outside very much. I think it's just important to try and maintain some sort of regular active cycle of some kind. Um, I've definitely been guilty of not exercising as much as I used to because I'm mostly home and inside. So I think that that's something that we can all think about. Well, in terms of circadian clocks too, I mean, do you wake up and deliberately expose yourself to sunlight right away? 
you know, like when people are at home, they need to pay more attention to that. Otherwise, I would think everyone's going to drift later. Yeah, I think that that's a good idea is exposing yourself to sunlight in the morning and also trying to avoid very bright lights in the evening. The sun's gone down. So maybe turning down the brightness on your TV, maybe using um, Apple has a circadian filter that you can put on your phone and on your com- uh, and on your computers that will um, turn down the, br- the brightness and make it more red. There's various ways out there to try to keep your clocks in sync. And especially since there's all this evidence that clock disruption can accelerate tumor genesis, it seems like a, a good choice for health. Yeah, so what, what uh, breakthroughs do you feel like uh, you're close to figuring out in the next year or two? Anything uh, you sense you'll, you're getting a better understanding of? Right, so, so what we're getting close to is being able to show both in cells and especially in mice that restoring the clock can actually slow tumor growth. If we turn the clock back on, then we can hopefully slow the growth of tumor cells and precancerous cells. And once we know that, that opens a whole world of possibilities of how do you best restore the clock. Do you use drugs? Um, and there's a few drugs out there that might do this. Do you use some of the interventions that I just talked about? Um, do you use gene therapy? Um, and so that's what we're working towards right now. Um, focusing on these cancers that have a really, really common mutation that, again, one, more than one third of human cancers have them. And turn the clock back on. We're hoping that this will weaken the cancer cells and make them even more vulnerable to other therapies um, to treat these cancers. Especially since MIC itself is not something we can drug. People have tried for years, and there's not any way to target MIC itself. So if this is a vulnerability of MIC cancers that opens up a lot. Very good. Uh, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research and your work? So um, I guess you can uh, log on to my website, University of Rochester. Um, I guess we can put it on the podcast at the end or just search um, Brian J. Altman Rochester and you'll find me. Um, we post there occasionally um, and then um, just keep an eye out for any new papers that we publish. Okay, very good. Well, Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thanks so much for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.